0: Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki.
1: And I'm Landry Ayers. I have been telling Natalie since this show began that there is one show that would be perfect for us to cover, and I finally got her to watch it. And this time, she actually enjoyed my suggestion. I think.
0: It's rare. It's rare. <laughs> it, it's,
1: it's true. Today, we are talking Veep. Here to discuss this eerily and infuriatingly accurate depiction of modern Beltway hijinks are federal policy analyst for the Tax Foundation, Alex Morishanu. Ah, hello. And senior producer at Reason, Zach Weissmuller. Hi.
0: All right. So we're all slightly ingrained in the DC life, and some of us are more ingrained than we want to be, honestly. But, you know, watching this show, it it was kind of nice just to see... Different ways we could be interpreting, you know, our everyday lives here in DC. How is Veep about the hypocrisy of politics?
2: I mean, I think it's it's, it's almost like the in, the entire show. I mean, it's it's almost like it it doesn't no, no one instance sort of sticks out of somebody being uh, of somebody being a hypocrite because I think that's just sort of the the ambient level the show is just sort of constantly at. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's just sort of a, a default level of, you know, say one thing, do the other, is just probably a premise behind like 80% of episodes in some way or another.
3: Yeah, it's almost hard to even call it hypocrisy because it's more like there's no hard and fast principles. I mean, some of the characters have beliefs, but... Really, they're just motivated by their political self-interest, and that's kind of the brilliance of the show to me, is that it's not really about anyone trying to achieve any particular policy or ideological agenda. It's just about kind of the psychology and the incentives that uh, politicians face in D.C.
1: I would be very curious then, particularly knowing where the show ends up. Spoiler alert. As always, (laughs) if you've seen Veep, stop listening. Go and watch it. It's better than this podcast. I'll say
2: that right now.
1: I'm not afraid of of doing that to our own show. Um, Particularly with the character of like Richard Splett, one of my favorites, who ends up becoming president of the United (laughs) States, despite the hesitation of some political fixers early on in the series. For a show that is as cynical as it is, to end on such a sort of optimistic note, uh, somewhat, every show, regardless of their intent, puts forth some sort of belief about truth in the world. It is that is embedded in how it operates. What does Veep believe in? What What does it portray as the truth about? Politics, or whether it's Washington D.C. or simply American government, what is the truth it believes in?
3: Yeah, I mean, I made a, a video uh, for a Reason about the on this topic a few years ago because I was, I was a huge fan of the show. I'm actually not in D.C. I'm in L.A., uh, but. So that, that's why it was like particularly interesting to me because I, I am like immersed in the world of politics and I know lots of people in D.C., but, you know, I've worked a little bit in the entertainment industry. My wife works in the industry. Uh, so I'm always really interested in how Hollywood portrays D.C. and um, in my Piece. I compared it to a couple other attempts, you know, the West Wing being uh, one of the more famous ones. Uh, And then House of Cards was also uh, popular at the time that Veep was. And my take on it was that the West Wing romanticized the president in particular and politics in general as these kind of noble statesmen who can kind of uh, rise above the fray and then inversely, House of Cards has a kind of dark, romantic vision of politicians as these ingenious Machiavellians who will literally just murder people to (laughs) move up uh, in the ranks. Um, And I think that there's some Machiavellianism in Veep as well, but it's weirdly like more grounded, even though the show has a level of absurdism to it. And so my ultimate take on Veep is that its worldview is basically overlapping with the Nobel Prize winning economist uh, James Buchanan, uh, who, you know, was one of the creators of what's known as public choice theory, um, which can kind of be summarized as politics without romance. So politicians are just like any of the rest of us. They're motivated by a combination of self-interest and self-image. Uh, and kind of what they can get away with, given the incentives that are facing them. So, for that reason, I, I always thought Veep, out of at least those three, and possibly any like Hollywood portrayal of uh, Washington D.C., is uh, you know among among the top in, in terms of of getting it right.
2: Yeah, I would I would agree um, a lot with with what Zach said. I would say that the the I guess the the thing about Richard Split becoming president at the end of the show that I think is an appropriate, I think is is actually an, an appropriate sort of, uh, offset to the, uh, cynicism of the show in that, like, I think the show's closing message is that is, is some level of sort of cosmic justice or whatnot that like Selena is so ruthless in her pursuit of power that like she ultimately ends up with nothing. And I do love the gag, which I'd forgotten they do a joke in the first episode about getting pushed out of the news cycle because Tom Hanks dies. Um, I forgotten that that was a joke in the first episode uh, when I watched the show again. Um, but you know, I thought that was that, was, that, that ultimately, and then Richard Split, you know, he is sort of a West. I mean, Westwig is, is a bit of, because he is a comic character, but like, that, that he is somebody who is in politics for the right reasons uh, or for the, the sort of right reasons and it's sort of public service minded uh, individual and I, f- I feel like he he oddly he oddly sort of reminds me I guess of of like Chester Arthur who is <laughs> in my opinion a very underrated <laughs> president um, because he is just like a a like guy who was brought up through the the spoil system of, of, of Gilded Age politics uh, and ended up vice president and then you know, Garfield gets shot and Arthur takes over, and Arthur ends up being the one who who does civil service reform, which was Garfield's big promise, and ends up taking on the machine. Um so I guess that is that is a sort of an odd I, I guess the closest thing to like a historical parallel I could think of. But that, that that sort of thing does happen too.
1: I think that's the first ever Garfield and Chester Arthur drops <laughs> that we've ever had on the show. Yeah. Um, you win. <laughs> but I hope it's not the last. I hope it's not the last.
3: Yeah, I, I think there's there's something to that. Uh and it's you know it's telling, you know, Split kind of accidentally falls into it. And I think that that's consistent with Veeps worldview in that if you're gonna get somebody who is kind of civic minded and uh you know very intelligent, though uh very socially awkward at the same time, uh it's going to sort of happen by by accident, um, because the way that the political system incentivizes uh, certain behaviors and certain personalities, someone like Splat isn't necessarily going to ri- go, you know, rise up through the conventional route. He's going to kind of accidentally fall into the
1: uh, Oval Office. Yeah, it's sort of a political Mr. Magoo situation. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's interesting that you brought up, you know, House of Cards and West Wing and I think in preparation Alex had written something about uh uh Parks and Rec I believe at mm-hmm. one point that if you I was thinking of those political compasses with the two axes, but if you were to (laughs) do it about their like depiction of government, whether they are, you know, benevolent or malevolent and whether they are effectual versus ineffective, these shows, while they're not all about national politics, they do kind of fit into these four quadrants where you have house of cards that's really malevolent and, and selfish and self serving and they're highly effective and Machiavellian, like Zach had said. And then you have. Parks and Rec, which is you know very noble and public service oriented, but they really can't get anything done <laughs> except for very minor things, um, and then. Uh, West Wing is noble and very effective and rouses the public and there's, you know, big it's, it's coded as very like successful and uniting by, you know, the big sweeping scores and the big, very Sorkin, you know, that's kind of his his bread and butter. And then there's Veep where there's a bunch of malevolent, selfish people but they are all too foolish to get anything <laughs> yeah. actually done that other than maybe a few of times they went office, um, th- they are never really successful. They are always still the fools in the show, which is is definitely one thing that I think Ianucci, when he started Veep and the, the sort of shows it was based on, uh, In the Loop and, and The Thick of It um, over in the UK, that, that, that is definitely an aim that I see there. Yeah, I thought
3: that's why it was uh, brilliant to set it in the VP office yeah. as well, because it just makes it a little, you know, lower stakes when they start off, you know, as president, you can't necessarily have like a kind of bumbling climber, like the, there is a sort of gravitas that immediately, you know, you have to embrace, whereas they could really dig into just the pure politics and political incentives with that sort of, uh <laughs> I'm not going to say entirely useless, but at least the way it's portrayed in the show, fairly useless. Uh, Go obviously. there. Well, I think it. their choice. Go there.
1: Let's dig deep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think their choice of like, for instance, setting this in like the VP office versus like the president also like helps them with dry humor. Right. So because the- there's like an underlying understand uh, understanding that's like you made it to the VP that's like a great accomplishment, but like, what do, they, what do they actually do? So like, there's almost like an inherent joke just in that setting. Um And I think this show does a really good job of like that dry humor that um, we've kind of been hinting at. And another thing um that I think Alex had written down in his notes beforehand, but this is another show about politics that doesn't necessarily tell you flat out who's on what side. Like we get like glimpses of, you know, Like they, they support certain issues or they are, they denounce others, but they never come out and straight up, straight up say, you know, what party they're affiliated with. And, you know, there's tension between Selena and the president and there's a lot of, um, back and forth. But I think that almost plays to their advantage because it makes both sides funny. Had it been like, uh, you're like Hollywood elites attacking the right or being a criticism of the left. I don't think it would be as funny just because. It kind of wanted to make everyone look ridiculous so that you didn't think you didn't think deeper of like, oh, is this person or is this politician supposed to be a Republican or are they supposed to be a Democrat? And I think that enhanced the show. Um, What do you guys
1: think? I
3: think think that uh, that Selena is a Democrat. uh, And also, uh, interestingly, uh, Frank um, Underwood from House of Cards is also a Democrat. And I think that those were both smart choices because you have these Hollywood people who are Democrats writing about Democrats. So it sort of creates a neutral like canvas, whereas if it's Hollywood liberals writing about Republicans, it suddenly becomes a commentary on like how dumb conservatives are or whatever. Um, So I, I thought that was, you know, a smart move. But, you know, to your point, She's a democrat but she's not really tied to any specific issue like she's she's so malleable like I know we all watched the Choi the um abortion episode which would be interesting to talk about because she expresses that she does have some political convictions in that episode but it ultimately doesn't really matter. It's about, uh, you know, they literally chart out what number on the week chart, uh, what trimester, you know, can we like settle on to... uh kind of calibrate between all of the different interest groups that are surrounding us and come up on this exact number. Uh, So that's like a perfect episode because it, it shows that kind of balancing act, you know, she's literally has Gary kind of shepherd away one of the uh, Planned Parenthood people. So she doesn't encounter, you know, a a pro-life Cardinal uh, (laughs) coming into her office. So
2: I think particularly in the, the abortion episode, the politics of, of, of the, the sort of political alignment in Veep is sort of, I guess, probably most accurate to like the 1970s in terms of where the two coalitions are. <laughs> but like the Democrats still have, or I, I think I agree, I agree that Selena is probably a Democrat, like on the whole, she she follows more that she's got like the family's First bill and the Clean Jobs Initiative and stuff. So I think on the whole, it seems like that is the Democratic Party. But like, At the end of the show you know famously she like appeals to like the conservative wing the like staunch social conservative wing of her party to ban gay marriage and i think that is i think part of how veep sort of cheats for the audience that like it creates political incentives for politicians on the show to compromise with sort of high emotion stakes issues that don't actually exist in reality like if you are a democrat you and you are running for president, you are pro-choice. Like, if you are a Republican and you're running for president, you are pro-life. There is no, like, the political incentives align with having, like, a very clear, staunchly defined position. Whereas, um, Veep, by messing with the coalitions, uh, you can allow people to sort of waffle on these very high high-stakes issues, which I do think probably reflects thought processes on other things that just tend to not be as particularly sort of general politics consumption oriented you know you know something something marginal like these specifics of how you know i don't know the h1b visa program works or or, or, or whatever something that is sort of very specific and not, <laughs> not like a big headline screaming news
1: natalie gonna flip the script here uh
0: okay hit it
1: as the only woman on this episode, <laughs> how do you feel about the depiction of women in politics on the show, whether it's <laughs> Selena or it's Amy or Uh-oh. it's... Selena uh,
3: wouldn't like being
1: asked the as a woman question. Yeah, you know <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I only do this because Natalie wrote it down in our notes. I did. So I did. she told me to do it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be like, speak for all women,
0: now. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to start my diatribe by saying as a woman, I feel, of. <laughs> but I can't as a woman. <laughs> um. So there, I guess this is twofold. And this comes kind of to head in the abortion episode, right? Um, where they they sit Selena down and they tell her like, okay, you need to like come out with a statement and it should start with the, as a woman, like you should really, you should really lean into your womanness in this statement so that people like, believe what you're saying, basically. And I, I mean, I found it troubling that she said, like, I think she was like, I can't identify as a woman. Like people can't know that I'm a woman. Um, which I was like, well, wait a second. uh, You're the VP. Do they not know this by now? Um, but it t- like taking that aside and kind of looking more into it, I think in a way that selena's character and obviously like she's the leading woman in the woman in the show is like she's angry she's aggressive she's like dysfunctional right (laughs) she like can't get much done which is funny because usually how women are portrayed for like in politics is more like they're cutthroat or they're too emotional not in, in like an angry way but she is almost portrayed to me as like having the personality of a male politician, and like her cutthroat nature, which I thought was interesting. And then like, I did some more research into this, you know, why did they choose to have the VP be a woman? Because at the time that the show was made, we obviously didn't have a VP as a woman yet. And they weren't necessarily all that concerned about it being like, Selena, her actress specifically, but they didn't want anyone. The show creators didn't want anyone to think they were trying to portray a VP that already like existed. Um, So they didn't think that it would like. They didn't want you to think that like Selena was Dick Cheney, for example. They basically chose it so that you didn't think that they were trying to like portray former Vice President Biden or uh, Dick Cheney or what have you. But I do think she is portrayed more like a male politician than most people perceive female politicians now like um this like the stereotypes i was talking about about them you know being emotional or like not cut out to lead and that kind of stuff um none of that is evoked in the show but i also think she is not willing to embrace her womanhood in order to like i for example, like win over voters. Um, if She doesn't want people to know she's a woman. She's like acutely aware that like that's going to deter her ability to, you know, be a politician or to uh, gain support. But it's also, Amy is also like, there's the, during the testimony episode, um, they're like asking, they're asking Amy a bunch of questions on the, the data breach and the email to the, to the bereaved parents. And, and they ask her like a question about, I forget exactly how it's raised, like a question about money. And she responds, she's like, are you only asking me this? Because like, I'm the woman on the panel and I don't have any expertise in this area. And I just thought there's like, there's a few times in there where it's like, they're very poignant parts that women are depicted as they're more so embracing like what a male politician would than what our stereotypes of female politicians are. Not that the stereotypes are correct, but they don't they don't lean into those uh, female politician stereotypes.
1: Right. Because we're seeing everything from behind the scenes too, which right. is interesting. Whereas if we were seeing everything like from the opposite end, I think we would see more of what you're talking about. Yeah.
0: Here. Yeah.
1: I would love to see Julia Louis Dreyfus as like Spiro Agnew. So <laughs> that would be really, really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> this Christmas.
0: You know, I have never seen this show before, as Landry already hinted at. And so I was watching, I binge watched for like the last like three weeks, the whole show. And because I watched it, you know, after Trump had been president, uh, some, some of the things I, I witnessed, uh, I was like, man, they really like, they really, they predicted the future. Um, so I like researched into it and they said the show creators were talking about, how sometimes they'd sit around and they're and they're trying to you know come up with different ideas for episodes, and they'd sit down and be like, "What's the dumbest thing that could happen in politics?" Um, and then <laughs> the show creator goes, "They're doing stuff, as in like the Trump administration and others and politicians bef- during the show are doing stuff they couldn't even think think about to invent <laughs> for the <this> show." <laughs> um, yeah, and. I'm kind of wondering what. How many times have you thought of Veep after something ridiculous has happened in the last, let's say, five years? How many times do you think it was like this? I'm living a real life Veep episode.
1: The big one is Nevada, <laughs> the 2020 election. The of <laughs> yeah, I mean, I
2: think like the, the eagle is is basically Rudy Gianni. <laughs> like, yeah. is basically, I think what's what's happening. I think they predicted that. <laughs> also, the, the the best. I think the most like Veep. Moment, especially, I guess this would be kind of sort of the end, the end stinger scenes or whatever, very much. Actually, no, I think this would be in in like a whole episode is uh, Four Seasons Total Landscaping. I think that is like, that is like the most sort of like...
0: Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Roll credits as Giuliani is starting the press conference. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Like
1: the whole episode is building up to like a big uh like tell all press conference and then the climax is we got the wrong four seasons and all these people show up credits roll absolutely <laughs> or i could also see uh you know selena stares into the eclipse and uh has to wear like eclipse sunglasses for like or a, like, a, an like, like she does <laughs> When she gets her her eye uh exam done and she has all the bruises and she has to wear the sunglasses when she goes to visit the naval ship on Thanksgiving, like it could be something like that where she just has to wear big sunglasses because she stared into the sun.
3: Yeah, uh, another Giuliani moment is him doing that press conference and just like sweating his oh, makeup yeah. off <laughs> of his face. That yeah, like that'd be a good um. A it, w- moment. it would be Mike
1: McClintock it, sweating his red yeah. mustache. <laughs> it would be like red off. Die.
3: <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, it is interesting. Like I was watching this as, uh, you know, contemporaneously as the Trump moment was unfolding, and they really every like everyone else were caught off guard by that. So there was, I, I think, it was maybe in its second to last season when Trump started to rise, and I remember watching that season and. I thought it was just the weakest season because it, it was so out of step with like what was going on. I think Selena was out of power and just trying to like get her presidential library in order and stuff. And it was just kind of <laughs> weak. Uh, and then they had a chance to come back and I thought they brought it all back together. Another, you know, behind the scenes aspect was that Armando Iannucci, the creator, had stepped away to do other projects, so they probably had to, you know, reorganize the writing stuff and so forth. But I did think they pulled it together for the last season, and they were able to start, uh, you know, tapping into like that weird populist energy that was happening. Um, you know, Jonah starts to become, you know, a potential candidate running on like math is bad because it was created by Muslims and stuff like that. Uh, and Selena. You know, goes like they pull out all the stops and she just becomes like as depraved as as you as possible and, you know, throws all her friends under the bus. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I thought that the final season um, really uh, they it, it was remarkable that they were able to um, kind of respond and, and rise to the occasion.
0: Well, I'd, I'd also read something after Trump was elected. They like had a serious like sit down with the writing team trying to decide if like people still thought politics was, was funny in terms of like them continuing this, the sitcom nature of the show. Um, and if it was like almost too real that their like jokes weren't going to land anymore. Um, which I thought was certainly, certainly pr- not something they probably predicted, um, when they first started the show. And they were, they probably had to have a much more careful eye to like a lot of their dry humor in the, in the last two seasons, partially just because uh, as we were watching, you know, the Trump, Trump's presidency unfold and, um, them kind of being, not being able to predict what Trump was going to do after, you know, they've already recorded and filmed these episodes. They wanted to make sure that nothing was like all that, um, controversial in the sense that like it wouldn't be like, Wouldn't be funny. Um, I also read that they like took out a few jokes after like post filming, like, um, some, and I guess in like post production stages of episodes that were coming out as like Trump was making certain remarks. Um, so I, I read this, I read this article that there was like some some joke that was made about like a golden shower in oh, um, one of the beep episodes. And it was like right before it was like the episode was supposed to come out, like right around the time that this whole like locker room talk scandal with Trump came out and they were like, okay, this is like not, not funny. Like no longer, no longer something that like we should keep in. Um, so I thought that certainly the show writers had a bit of a challenge <laughs> um, in the later seasons to still stick like a landing with the show and like keep it relevant but not lose you know the audience that they gained through all of this was uh, for a sitcom audience um and was for comedy and it wasn't for like the seriousness of politics no one was watching this show like as as like a a a drama it was it it was entertainment it was comedy
1: Yeah, it would have been too on the nose, I think, for them to even include that joke, even if they weren't like, "Oh, it's." It just wouldn't be as funny. And I think that arrives at that moment that Zach was talking about, which is, I think, that sixth season where she's out of power. It just there was that was when Trump was happening, so I think people were tired. They didn't want to think about politics. She was also, you know, there was that lull in the writing staff, and it they're really lucky that they pulled it out for the seventh season as well as they did because it could have easily ended so, so poorly at that moment after the sixth season. Um, But I think at that point, they were like, we can invest in the seventh. Yeah. The way they
3: made it work, I think, is that they didn't just make Selena into Trump or even Mm -hmm. like create a Trump-like character. They just sort of... What did what they are so good at, which is to show you the incentives that these politicians face and in this case, why is there why are there incentives for populism? Well, it's because you know partly in our media environment, um, saying these things that get like a big rise out of a crowd, um, just that electrifying moment, um, you know, th- even in the earlier season, she accidentally, like, goes, like, hardline uh, anti-immigration um, because she <laughs> right. forgets, like, what her motto is. And so she, uh, like, she has the three R's and she forgets oh, the yeah. last R and the last R is repel. She just comes up with repel and she's like, we got to repel all the immigrants out of here. And then she, like, gets, like, a big reaction. And, I mean, that that's, like, very Trumpian in a way. It's like he just th- would throw stuff out there and uh if something got a reaction kind of like go with it and so you know we were seeing the nature of presidential politics especially like changing as the show was going on and it's partly because i i think you know the nature of how me- media is changing for some reason lends itself to populism
1: um yeah That moment where if it was you're talking about how politics was changing and that type of what could have been a gaffe or a, you know, something that would have gone wrong can instead be something that people glom onto. You know, it's people being like, I like Trump because he talks like a normal person as opposed to some very slick politician, whereas a few years before you had Rick Perry do that exact thing in a presidential debate with the three agencies of government. And he forgets the last one. That's probably what they were parodying. Yeah. 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 And, and it's especially because the, like the way he did it was a perfect comedic gag. Like in the rule of three, he sets up one agency of government. He's like, I'm going to get rid of these three. There's this one, there's the second one. And he establishes a pattern. And then the third thing he forgets. So it's like a punchline <laughs> to a joke where they they pull the rug out from under you. And he does that three times in the debate. So he, he establishes <laughs> a pattern within the pattern. And on the third time, he just gives up early. So it was this perfect comedic moment that they were able to play off of. But in today's sort of political environment, they were right on the cusp where they could see that... Like, cause they could have very easily made that moment something that everyone laughed at Selena for and her campaign, you know, falls off and, and, and does terribly. But they were like, wait a minute. And I think this is one way that they were ahead of the curve and sort of seeing the the signs of of what was happening in politics, is they were like, wait, someone could glom onto that and be like, I like the way she did that. I'm gonna I'm we're actually gonna make that and the twist of the episode is that it works for her in the same way that something that Donald Trump might say, people would be like, "Oh, he messed up in the, you know, normal political sense, but we like that about yeah. him."
3: I mean, the, yeah, the way they really run with that in the final season is with Jonah because he just becomes—he's really like the Trumpiest character Jonah. in the final season. <laughs> the whole, through the he whole just, uh, I mean, he, the, I love big, him his...
1: because he's the worst. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, which makes sense. That's exactly what he what we want. Yeah. him as a character to be if he is the trumpiest like Zach said.
3: Yeah, like his his signature issue at the beginning is abolishing daylight savings time <laughs> which is like <laughs> yeah everyone everyone time. loves it it's so simple uh and uh, then you know what you said about people want uh, you know would always talk about how Trump talked like a normal person or I mean not a normal person but <laughs> I guess he he didn't speak in uh, you know political lingo necessarily yeah. Yeah. and um, that was that was Jonah's appeal is uh, uh, to to the people of New Hampshire where he was from was he would uh, just say the things people were were thinking um, and yeah so they. Uh, they really uh, were able to adapt and kind of tap into the moment in, a, in an interesting way.
2: Yeah, I think the 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 strongest parallel with Trump and Jonah is his slogan. I believe was is the the outsider's insider, which is like very much the like trump pitch about being like you know <laughs> i know all these people like i've donated to all of them like you know and i i you know that is 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 very sort of similar i will say also on the subject of like uh, vp uh, in real life moments the, the, another one has to be rick perry becoming director or yes. becoming uh, like secretary of the, yes. of the yes
1: yes absolutely um
2: in that moment. <laughs> um oh my gosh
1: i forgot i forgot that he that was his job i'm from texas he was my (laughs) governor and i forgot i think i just blocked it out it was too traumatic for me
0: (laughs) Elandra mentioned just the nevada episode nevada nevada (laughs) Nevada. (laughs) um i was sitting there and i was like oh man this is like teetering on the edge of ptsd from like the last like two months of 2020 which you know 2020 had a great year. We all had a fantastic year at home. Um,
1: Nothing wrong with
0: that. um, But it was sitting there and like there... I could just picture like... Because she's like video conferencing back and forth (laughs) with Amy and was like, did you count the votes? And then I'm I'm thinking of like, they're arguing over (laughs) whether or not they voted for Selena and like whether or not to count which vote. And I'm thinking of like the hanging chads in 2000. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, they they really killed this one. <laughs> um, also because it was Nevada, because like Nevada was a state that was in contention in 2020 and they had to do a recount for. It. So then I was like, I was like, I feel like The newscasters from twenty twenty probably could have, you know, contributed to the the real life uh seriousness of this episode. Um and then they they had
1: the there was the stop every vote, stop counting the votes, count every vote (laughs) switch, which was happening simultaneously in different states during twenty twenty. You've got like Philadelphia where they're like, Stop counting, we're (laughs) done. And then there's Nevada where they're like, We need to count all the votes, (laughs) go. So these like conflicting messages are happening. Different parts of the country, whereas on Veep they just happen to be happening right next to each other and then
2: swapping. <laughs> but I think that was also true about like the national conversation, like because I remember sure. on, on on Wednesday after the election, a bunch of a bunch of the Trump Trump people who I followed were like, "Look, you can't you can't dra- you can't drag this out. You can't. I mean, you can't just keep it going. You can't have recounts forever. I mean, you know." And then like the next day, they were like, we're, "Well." Uh, you can't you can't stop like you know I, I I did see that like immediate immediate switch for for a lot of people
1: as people who are tangentially related to Beltway goings on <laughs> at the very least who do you identify with as a part of the show even if you're not you know on a campaign or working in an office who's someone that if if you were in their shoes you'd be like that's probably the kind of person that I would be. Flaws and all. Really read yourself to filth here.
0: <laughs> um
1: I, I'm gonna say Natalie is our Sue because <laughs> if we didn't have Natalie on our team, we would just collapse underneath the weight of it all. She's the record keeper and it's if anything goes wrong, we call Natalie and we're like, What's on the schedule? she's like, It's this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would say I would say I'm I'm probably Sue sue or occasionally amy
1: yes yeah if you need someone to like you know be like i need you to go yell at this person and make sure that this gets done like you would send amy or something yeah be like natalie can you make a phone call for us but
0: i do want (laughs) to give a little shout out to gary um just because Hmm. you know he is the best character (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have much to stand on why I think that way. I just think it's so funny, like <laughs> that he always is like the butt of every joke or he always gets thrown under the bus. <laughs> or like he also his job is you know relatively pointless. He can't uh, Selena says herself that he, she, he is literally useless, which he's obviously not. Um, but I just wanted to like give some love for Gary. I'm definitely not Gary. Uh it never will be Gary, but I
1: think I'm I'm a little Gary. You think I'm a, so? There's a little part of me that's just a little <laughs> part of me that's Gary. There's also a little part of me that's Jonah. I think. Gary <laughs>
3: and uh, uh are really the like only good hearted characters in the show. Like uh Gary is just he's just a total loyalist. Like he believes in Selena for some reason. <laughs> uh he might be like in love with her, but in some very strange uh non-sexual way um and uh he just will do anything for her and you know ultimately like does take the ultimate fall for her so he is he's like the martyr of the show yeah
2: i, I always i always liked uh, kent uh our awkward king you know he is just so like dry and and it's i don't even i i i would view comparing myself to kent as aspirational like (laughs) i would like to be that good with numbers of being like you know I, i always wished i was a little bit better at math than i am but you know i just his his just sort of general demeanor and and like disinterest in in i guess I guess because he's constantly pulling everything He is obsessed with what is politically relevant, but he has no like stake. He's just a guy. He's just like a guy who's like, I just do the numbers and I, I <laughs> yeah. just tell you what they say, you know? And there are just so many good moments where he is taking something, just taking everything literally and not reading the subtext that everybody mm. else in the room is <laughs> like, uh, but I, I do like one of my favorite catch moments is that like Ben it's in the mother episode that we all watched. Um, that like he, he he when when Ben Ben like says something to Selena to like console her and then Ken just sort of stares and goes Hmm I recall you said those same words to me when my cat Fibonacci died. I found it very soothing. <laughs> like it's just it's just I don't know. I just I just love those Kendra. were
1: written in a card to me. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I agree with that I also love that he's a part of a biker gang, you find out <laughs> at one point. <laughs> like a, an exclusively Spanish speaking biker gang, too.
3: <laughs> Uh, The one that I probably, you know, have them relate to the most just being, you know, part of the media is there's the the journalist who's always trailing Selena's campaign (laughs) and, you know, interacting with Mike. And they have this like contentious relationship where, you know, he's always trying to get, you know, what's really going on. And Mike is just like badly spinning him. Um, like I I, I enjoy like those little relationships that they portray, in that you know, they they need each other. Uh, and and Mike is obviously like terrible at his job, uh, and um, constantly like spills secrets that he's not supposed to. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoy, like, I, I enjoy that little interaction just because of, of the dance between like the PR person and the journalist where, uh, they're just constantly trying to like put things in the rosiest light possible even when like it's clear everything's falling apart.
1: Yeah. I I take it all back. I am 100% Mike McClintock. <laughs> now that I remember Mike. Just a just a fool trying to keep it all together and make it seem like he has got so much under control and is so wise, but it's just like the the scenes of him over time when he talks about like adopting the child from China and they are going to get it. So he's redoing the basement and then they aren't going to get it. So he turns it into a, like a, a media room and then they end up getting the child. So they have to move the bedroom into that tiny room. And he's like, Oh, I got to check for asbestos. best I haven't done that, yet. <laughs>
0: yeah. like,
1: all of those things. I was like, that would be me if I was in that scenario. Yeah, I,
2: feel like, I feel like Mike is, Mike is also kind of an, an underrated as, as, as- I wouldn't say he's sort of as as sort of good-hearted as a Richard Splett, but it's it's like he 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 isn't like nefarious. He is not particularly like scheming. He's just
1: a fool. yeah he's just like
2: a guy who's bad at his job which, which I guess is there is like a, a continuum I guess of, of sort of competence. I guess sort of to to Landry's point at the beginning about the sort of uh, like contrasting and sort of high high competence and like high, you know, malevolence versus benevolence, that like on the show I think there's a pretty strong correlation with like semi competence and like nefarious intent. That like Mike Mike is too like clueless to be a schemer. So like that yeah. Yeah. He just wants to work in the
1: NHL. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. So, Alex, Zach, anything? Yeah,
3: I mean, uh, this is... It feels like a lot of people are reading this book right now, but um, The Revolt of the Public um, by Martin Gurry is a really interesting book that also does a lot to explain our moment. He's um, kind of a... He's a former uh, CIA analyst um, who studied the way that uh, media created various revolutions around the world, uh, the Arab Spring and um, contributed to the rise of Trump. And just the way that, you know, with the kind of fall of the traditional gatekeepers, that there's an inability to keep. Uh, kind of keep information, you know, locked down and uh, highly relevant in the era of COVID as well, when experts have put out guidance that's not always been 100% uh, and the public, you know, sniffs it out right away. Uh, and it just kind of creates this cycle of distrust. Uh, so re- really interesting book and um recommend it to anyone who wants like a better understanding of what's going on right now because uh, i feel like it gave me some clarity
2: um yeah i'm trying to think of of like movies that i've watched recently that I, I i like to go through i guess i i guess with with the oscars last night you know or two nights ago how like i hadn't seen any of them and evidently not a lot of, not a lot of other people did given that it was just, like the lowest watched And I've read a lot of a lot of takes about how sort of movies are increasingly stratified between like you have like your mega superhero Star Wars blockbuster and like weird indie movie, which I I feel find unfortunate because I think I like very much sort of middle middle band types of movies uh, uh, like uh, sort of buddy, buddy cop movies and stuff like that. Um, So I guess a couple of movies that I like that are sort of in that middle range that, you know, people might not have might have heard of but not seen or if you're really if you're like a movie buff you probably probably see them but like big fan of um kiss kiss bang bang uh which was robert downey jr's comeback movie in like 2005 it's him and val kilmer um and uh it's like a noir la comedy sort of like if you like the nice guys it's the same director as the nice guys if you like the nice guys you will also like kiss kiss bang bang um it's great he's like a robert downey jr plays like a thief who sort of bumbles into an audition for some cop movie and so he gets assigned to like work with a detective to to like learn to like prepare for his part um and then they get caught up in you know crime and hijinks um yeah, what else? Oh, I'm a big fan of the 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger movie The Last Stand, which came out in 2013, which was supposed to be his like, I think, big comeback movie after he was governor, did not do particularly well. Um but basically basically it's like a, a modern western almost. He plays like a small town sheriff in Arizona, and there's like some some drug lord has like escaped and is heading towards the border, and Arnold Schwarzenegger's town is the last town, you know, between the, the god the fugitive <laughs> and the border um and it's it's like he it's arnold schwarzenegger doing a clint eastwood impression oh
1: my <laughs>
2: which is should it just as a concept be fantastic right. and i think it is uh it's just it's just like very over the top and ridiculous especially the second half of the movie but i have a very good time watching it i've seen it like a bazillion times it's just so fun
0: so it's very arnold schwarzenegger if it's very over the top That's just...
2: Yes, yes.
1: That's his his style. style. Uh, Excuse you, (laughs) Natalie. Put some respect on his name. All right. He is the actor known for the film Kindergarten Cop. Um, Actually,
0: his favorite performance to me is um, Jingle Jingle All all The Way. way. Love it. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, For me, the other stuff I've been doing... um, I started a new book this week called The Things We Do For Love. It is not... World War II fiction. Um, so I'm taking (gasps) a World War II fiction break, but have no fear. The next one I read will be World War II fiction. I already, the problem was like I didn't reserve it at the library in time and there was like a kerfuffle and the, the schedule was off. Anyway, um, I also, you know, I spent the last uh, three weeks watching Veep. Um, so (laughs) I haven't, haven't watched much else. Um, but I am hoping with a, After seeing some of the Oscars stuff, I didn't actually watch the Oscars. I just watched people talk about the Oscars like on Twitter. I do want to get, I do want to see The Father with Anthony Hopkins. I've heard good things. And I do want to get to watch Minari. Those two are high on my list. Um, So hopefully by our next recording, I'll have uh, feedback for both of those.
1: I finished Red Dead Redemption 2 for the PlayStation 4. It was a phenomenal story. I loved it. Had a great time. I think it's an amazing game. Uh, if you're at all interested in Cowboys or anything like that, I think you should play Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, and uh, I needed another game to play after that. So I just started The Last of Us, um, which is, you know, comes highly recommended. They're going to make it. I believe it's an HBO series uh, with Pedro Pascal um, in the lead role. Um Great story so far. Harder than I thought it was going to be. I had to switch to easy mode, which I do not do. Wow, I do not do proudly, but I thought I could do normal. I couldn't. I think I'd been playing too much like cowboy games. and thought I could just run and gun through it. But no, you have to be sneaky. And I also uh, started reading Piranesi by Susanna Clark, which is a really, really great book. I I think Julian Sanchez actually recommended it on a previous episode of Pop and Lock. So go back and find that one because I wouldn't be able to summarize what's going on in it for you um, so far because I still don't really know. Um, But I think he did. So maybe go back and and listen to that if you're curious about what the book's about. But it is very well written. And uh, I also am going to start Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurdy a classic sort of Western uh, epic novel that I'm very, very excited to read. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock related content and to connect with us is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's pop, the letter N, lock with an E like the philosopher, pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.